Are you ready for common sense retirement planning advice? Tired of the noise coming out of mainstream financial media that doesn't always have your best interest at heart? Looking for someone who will answer the tough questions that applies to your money? Well, welcome to the Plan to Retire podcast. Each week, certified financial planner Jeff Bowers will make you a better investor, consumer, and help you make smart money choices as you journey through retirement. Head on over to plantoretire.com, that's the number two in Plan to Retire, where you can learn more, schedule a no-obligation introductory phone call, or subscribe to this free podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Now, here's your host, Jeff Bowers. Today on the Plan to Retire podcast, we have an esteemed colleague from Dimensional Funds, Dr. Apollo Lepescu. He is Vice President of Dimensional Fund Advisors, one of the premier investment managers in the world currently managing over $500 billion in assets. He is a nationally and internationally recognized speaker who has delivered hundreds of lectures and seminars to financial professionals and individual investors on various investment topics. Dr. Lepescu is considered the, quote, secretary of explaining stuff, unquote, because he excels at delivering thought-provoking presentations in a clear and understandable way. Apollo has been with Dimensional in Los Angeles for over 16 years, and prior to that, taught at the University of California. He received his PhD in economics and finance from UC Santa Barbara. Apollo also holds a BA in economics from Michigan State University, where he competed and coached water polo. Rumor has it that even now, he is an avid player. So with that, Dr. Apollo, welcome. And I'm just amazed that you can swim because I sink like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, rumor has it you mountain bike and I'm just getting into that. So <laughs> yeah, we yeah. all have our special talents out there. <laughs> I, I guess so. I guess so. Hey, but it is great having you with us today and jumping right into this. You know, one of the things we're hearing constantly from my clients and just people I run into in the streets or gosh, even my neighbor is some investors are unfazed by the election, or it seems like others consider selling their stocks based on the outcome. How much does it really matter for the stock market, having a Republican or Democrat in the White House? And what about control of Congress? Right. Yeah, obviously, it's such a timely topic because the last week has just been dominated by election and likely we'll continue to talk about this for a while. Perhaps the place to start is to recognize that politics touches on our deeply held beliefs and uh, core identity as individuals. And because of that, it tends to be very, very emotional. And, and there's nothing wrong with feeling emotion. And there's nothing wrong with having this passion towards the way that we believe things should be. The question for investors is, how does it play out when you make decisions that are clouded with emotion? Are they always in your best interest? Are they not in your best interest? And to me, the place that I would start is acknowledge these emotions. It's absolutely fine to feel them because that's kind of what makes us human beings. On the other hand, what you want as an investor, and particularly as an investment manager, is to acknowledge them yet disentangle them from investment decisions. Because what we see over and over is that the times when there's an emotional charge in the air, these decisions are not always based on data analysis and evidence, but much more on how we feel. And these feelings are driven by emotions. And when you look in hindsight at so many instances in my life and, and so many investors that I talk to, when emotions played a role, whether it was you were afraid when the market tanked or you were really ecstatic when the market was going up and you bought or sold on those emotions, they tend not to be always in your best interest. So let's acknowledge these emotions. 
absolutely important, absolutely fine and understandable why we have them. On the other hand, I'd like to take a look more from a data analytics perspective and, and be very pragmatic in the way we look at the election and politics. And to the question that he asked, does it matter whether we have a Republican or a Democrat? You know, by now it's, we have enough data to examine it. And what we found when we looked at the data is that historically, when you look at the average return per year in the market doing Republicans or Democrats, there does not seem to be evidence to show that having a Republican or a Democrat is better or worse for the market. The two times in my lifetime, I'm born in 1969, I'm 51 years old. And in my lifetime, two presidents had negative annualized returns during their time in office. The first one was President Nixon. For the five years or so that he was in office, the market dropped on average by about 2.9, let's say 3% per year on average during the five years or so that he was in office. And the second was President George W. Bush, which is a little over 4% on negative per year during the eight years in office. But, you know, what's important to acknowledge is that a president should receive neither credit nor blame because if a lot bigger <laughs> than what their policies might be drive the market. And I think this is going to be a thesis that's going to come up over and over again. I think that's the primary thesis, in fact, is that politics and the White House and Congress, for that matter, are a variable when it comes to investing but not the variable. It is not the primary variable. It's one of the many, many things that impact what the market does. And if you look at these two examples that I mentioned, President Nixon and President Bush, it turns out that in both their cases, for example, they should not necessarily receive blame. Hey, you know, you look at President Nixon, the market did badly. Did he have anything to do with him? Well, if you think about it, before he even set foot in the White House, there was a move to transition from the gold standard to the current type of currency we have. He had nothing to do with that. And yet he did create some disruptions in the economy. And then in 73, we had the conflict in the Middle East leading to the 73-74 oil embargo, and not just the 73-74, but that crisis caused by the oil embargo that was devastating to the stock market. Once again, nothing that, that he can point to President Nixon and say, aha, it's your fault. The same with President Bush. As he walked in the White House, the dot-com bust had just begun, something he had nothing to do with, <laughs> and he lost while. And then 9-11 happened nine months into his term and walked off at the bottom of the financial crisis. Should he receive blame and say, aha, no, look, the market didn't do well because we had a Republican in office. Not at all. A lot bigger things are driving the market. And on the other side too, you look at President Clinton, he had remarkably good returns way above the historical average. And it's not because of something that he can pinpoint you did something. Well, a lot of it had to do with these tech giants being formed, being established at the time that he was in office. And he wasn't a directive that the White House gave. It just happened that he was in office when Google and Amazon were formed. That was just the luck of the draw. And again, you look and you can't say having a Democrat is bad or good for the markets. But if people are concerned right now, over the, let's say we have a Democratic president now, and if people are concerned, what's the market going to do? What I can tell you that looking back at President Carter and looking at President Clinton and looking at President Obama, in every single case, on average, the market had average return over 10% during these three Democratic presidents. And in fact, it was about 16% during President Obama and about 17% during President Clinton. So in, in each one of these cases, it did seem that the market did something that it was good. It was positive outcomes for investors. And ultimately, it seems like what you're saying is it really doesn't come out to who wins. 
So we shouldn't necessarily make changes to our investment allocations just purely off who wins and who loses. But ultimately, why do we see these results and what is the underlying reason for optimism in the future during uncertain times? Why do you think that is? Yeah, and that's a fundamental premise because you might look and say, wait, you know, must be the policies have to do with something. Surely, you know, tax policy, what if taxes go up or down? Shouldn't that matter? Again, when we look at the evidence, it's not that clear that it's, that's not the driver. That's not the reason for my optimism is tax policy or whatever policies might come. They don't impact as much as the market as much as people think. I think the absolute underlying optimism that I have about the future comes from the fact that us as individuals, us as consumers, we are resilient. We are resilient. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, Jeff, but once the election results were known, I ate as many blueberries as I did the week before. (laughs) (laughs) I I carried on the life that I had before. I I didn't change fundamentally my life. I think most people are going to continue to go to work. They're going to take care of their kids. They're going to clean their house and do the thing that the same purchases that they've had before. So we are very resilient. Emotionally, we might feel either good or bad, which leads us to be more optimistic or pessimistic about our future views, which is absolutely normal and fine. But in terms of how we behave as consumers, I think we are remarkably resilient. And I would invite every listener to think about how have you changed your consumer behavior in the past as in response to an election? And what you find is that not that much. So we are resilient. Secondly, companies are resilient. And what I mean by that is that companies that we invest in and these companies in the U.S. stock market, because we operate in a capitalist world and we are in free markets, they will find a way to make money under any situation, under any circumstance that might be presented to them. Irrespective of President Biden, irrespective of who might be in Congress, they will find a way to make money. And this premise has been with this free markets capitalist society for the very beginning. That's what sets us apart. And that's what I think makes these companies resilient. They'll figure out a way to make money. And by the way, think about this, Jeff. The profits that a company like Apple, for example, makes, What do you think depends more on the products they have, the services, the competition, the strategy, how they execute it, what's going on in the world, or the policies coming from the White House? On the margin, those policies might impact it, but I would argue that the source of profits comes a lot more from decisions they make internally. And perhaps a great example of that is Marriott. You know, Marriott is the hotel company. Everybody knows that the lodging has been taking a big hit during the pandemic and they took a huge hit. So the profits dropped significantly, not because of anything that happened in the White House, but because of the coronavirus and what was happening in the world. What's incredible that not even nine months after the pandemic, while the hotels are still in a dire shape, the news this week was that Marriott returned to profitability. I mean by the resiliency in companies. And, and that's, I think it's going to be irrespective of who's in the White House. So consumers are resilient, companies are resilient, and therefore I think the markets of the whole will be resilient because of both the consumers and the companies. And unless we change the fundamental premise of the system, which really is not the case, I don't believe at all that President Biden or Congress, we've been operating like this for many, many years, and there's no indication to show that we're moving in a different direction and these companies won't be free to pursue opportunities. I don't believe that at all. Taxes might go up or down. We've seen in the past. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> Speaking of companies and individuals being resilient, they'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, that's what they do, right? And you know, it's funny you say about resilience. In the spring, right in the heat, 
of the COVID. I had a local realtor on the podcast, and she was telling us then, this is the very crusp and at the beginning of what I think I'm sure you'll see in California and, and we're seeing here in the East Coast is an incredibly robust real estate market. And so that's a classic case to me of how resilient, and it's predominantly millennials. My daughter is an example. Her friends, people are buying houses like crazy because interest rates are so low. They're incredibly resilient. And this, who would think we would be having a real estate boom in the middle of a pandemic, but we are. That's a great point. <laughs> and look around. I mean, as, even as shops are closed, how many places you go and you can buy things because they're sold out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, building supplies, I talked to everything from electricians to carpenters and they're telling me what the price of plywood is like tripled. The price of one inch PVC piping has doubled in the last month and all that supply and demand oriented. But anyway, you know, you mentioned about Apple and, you know, sometimes they refer to them as the Fang stocks or the Fama stocks. No direct shot at Dr. Gene there. But, you know, Fama, you know, when you look at Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet, there's kind of this mindset of, oh, the market's really not doing that great because it's in a handful of small providers. Jeff, I'm not going to buy anything any more than just those handful of and companies. And I know the answer to this because I saw your presentation in the last month in a webinar. I thought it was excellent to point out the topic about why should I myself as an investor not just dump all my money in those stocks? Well, it's start by acknowledging that they've done tremendously well, tremendously well. It's something that did not go unnoticed. We have been in a pandemic. And if you look at these five stocks, the Fama stocks, as you said, no reference to Professor Fama. If you look at these five stocks, on average, over the first nine months of the year through the end of Q3 2020, on average, these five stocks were up about roughly about 40%, 40% increase in the year of a pandemic. The S&P 500, which is the metric of the market, was up about 5 6%. And a lot of it was driven by these companies being so big. So people are taking notice. And beyond that, I think that is also a realization that every single one of us is using these companies more than before. I mean, we're all, every single day, we're staring at our phones. I use a Microsoft product every day, Google for sure, and Amazon. I mean, whether you liked online shopping or not, the fact that stores are closed, you almost had to go, and they certainly picked up a lot more business. So in a way, it reflects our experience as consumers. And if you see that it's real to you, why wouldn't I want to put more money into those companies? And I think that that intuitively to some people might see that's that's a good idea. There are a few things that I would encourage people to consider. The first thing is that as a company gets larger and larger and larger, one of the things that you see happening is it invites more scrutiny. And if you remember not many weeks ago or months ago, there was a very public hearing on these the heads of the four families <laughs> when they <laughs> in, the, in front of Congress. And, and you kind of see that the environment is changing. There, there's more attention being paid. They have, again, a, a bigger magnifying glass looking at what they do. And even now there is an antitrust case against Google. And what was interesting to me is that Microsoft, which is the fifth largest one, was not there. And the reason for that is because they were actually, they had their day in the spotlight 20 years ago when Bill Gates testified and they wanted to break down Microsoft. And even as the government didn't pursue that and Microsoft still is the way it is, you listen to interviews is that that government scrutiny really had a big impact on Microsoft. And I read a recent article where Bill Gates was talking about working on Windows Mobile. 
at the time. And there was so such a big distraction that came from these government hearings and all the lawsuits that they ended up like not pursuing that as, as aggressively because of this. We might use Windows phones today instead of Apple phones if that was the case. So to me, I'm not saying that this is going to be the demise of these. Not at all. All I'm saying is that when you invite more scrutiny, there is perhaps a bit of an added risk to that company than it was before. Secondly, when you think of these companies and how big they have gotten, it is hard to look and say, boy, can these companies sustain growth at the same click for years and years to come? And I think that's a really important point because they've had great performance so far. They're massive companies. But if you think of it, Jeff, how easy would it be for Amazon to grow and double in size or Apple to grow and double in size? It's hard to imagine that that's that easy. And what you see is there is a pattern of these companies. When they get to be so large, they become more mature companies and they become steadier companies. And what it means is that they give investors perhaps a little bit more stability. But it doesn't necessarily mean that would also provide the great returns that they got up to this point. And to me, that's a really important thing, because if you look at at these companies that have been large and dominant, we had a great study on that. If you look at these companies that have been in the top 10 largest stocks in the U.S., and you look historically, what happens is that they do actually tend to stay on top in this club, in this, you know, stratosphere of the largest companies for decades. It's not unlikely that these companies that we're talking about will be in there for decades and decades. It's possible because the data suggests that, yes, we've certainly seen that in the past. AT&T, by the way, was a technology stock of the 30s. And it was in the top four largest stocks for 70 years. So it could be a long time. Exxon was in the top five for 90 years. So these companies, once they get large and dominant, they could continue to be that large and dominant for many, many years. On the other hand, if you ask the question, will these continues to be large and dominant? Actually, instead of asking the question, will they continue to be large and dominant? And you reframe the question to what's more important to us, which is, would these large and dominant companies also be great investments? Well, that's a different question because what you see is that on the way up, before they become a top 10 large company, they have phenomenal performance. Once they reach that peak, the performance going forward is certainly not the same. It is just not the same. Again, it's intuitive a bit because it's harder to grow. And also if they grow the same click, it's quite likely that perhaps in a decade, these five companies could amount to a month, half the market, which is really unreasonable to think that half the stock market being five companies. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's, that's so it is, we've seen that in the past. In other words, there is a pattern that we can look and we can see in the past. And what we see is that these large companies perform great. And that's one of the reasons that they get to be there because the stock price becomes so big. But then following that, they can really sustain. They run out of steam. And the last reason that I would say it's not always wise to put all the money in there is because as an investor, you really want to have the next Amazon, the next Apple. And just intuitively, how can you have the next Amazon by just holding Amazon? <laughs> you know, you need to diversify. And I think that's really important is to say, well, we need to have some money into these stocks, no doubt about it. How much though? That's the question. And, and what we are uh, strong believers in is, is this idea of diversification. Diversification, not only to mitigate the risk that something might go wrong, but also to capture the opportunities of these next Fama stocks. Well, that's a very good point. You know, and shifting gears, I noticed this in our own client portfolios. Yes, stocks have returned well 
But, you know, the little hidden, dirty little secret, I think, in a financial advisory business over the last 20 years is how a lot of financial advisors and clients have made money on what I'd call the lazy method of buying bonds and just simply holding that bond. Some of them to the point a portfolio is making eight, nine, 10% returns over the last year or two on a portfolio of treasury bonds. My concern going forward is okay, is that really repeatable? So if it's not repeatable, if we're in an extreme of returns on bonds, why would investor, why should they still have bonds in a portfolio? That's a very timely question because we are in a very low interest rate environment. And I think quite a lot of folks are wondering, well, why exactly do I want to hold these bonds in my portfolio when I'm not really making that much when you look at the yield on these bonds? And to begin with, I think it's important for any investor to consider that exact question. Why am I holding bonds to begin with? And if you look at the the evidence that exists out there and you look at the, just the data, what you see is that the stock market has provided really nice growth to investors. And we have a book called The Matrix Book. That's a fantastic book that looks at of a dollar in the stock market going back to 1926. And what you see is that a dollar invested in the stock market since 1926 would have grown to you know over $9,000, 9,000-fold 9, in my dad's lifetime because my dad is 94 right now, so I can talk. Oh, wow, good for him. By the time he was 93, actually, it went to about 9,000. What's remarkable is that what you do in the market is you buy ownership in companies. And the value of the ownership depends on what you will receive as an investor, which are cash flow or namely profits. What earnings the company has? Well, if you're part owner, you are entitled to part of those profits. The thing is profits fluctuate. And because profits fluctuate, having ownership in these companies would have a fluctuating value. And that's why you have these swings in the stock market, because, you know, if the companies as a whole, as the market hit a bump in a row with the economy, whatever the case might be, their value goes down and then you see a loss in your portfolio. But it's the resilience that we talked about earlier that eventually gets the stocks back on track. But it could be a while. It doesn't have to be immediate. So stocks give you the growth, but it's a bumpy ride. It's a bit of a let's say a roller coaster ride. <laughs> it's like going to Six Flags and being on Goliath or Superman. It's, it is something that even as your stomach is turning, <laughs> you're better off staying in your seat than trying to jump out in the middle of it. But that's what the stocks do. Now, bonds, on the other hand, are not about buying ownership. So stocks are ownership. Bond is lending money. You have money and you can lend it because there are borrowers out there, either corporations or governments, who would like to borrow. And when you enter into this contract, in fact, with a borrower like a government or a corporation, then in the contract, there is a specified interest rate that you will receive when you lend the money for how long you receive that, that interest rate. And at the back end, you get your money back. That's the main difference between stocks and bonds. Stocks are ownership, bond is lending. And the lending comes with certainly a little bit more certainty because it's a contract. And if a corporation doesn't pay you back, you can actually take them into bankruptcy, depending on the, what bonds you have. And because of that, there tends to be a lot more stability in the value of an account invested in bonds. So if you look historically over the same time period, let's say by investing your money with the U.S. government, you lend them the money, you get it back 30 days later, plus interest. What you see is that in 90 plus years of data, there has not been a single calendar year in this 30-day U.S. Treasury bond index when you would have seen a negative outcome in any year. You don't open the statement at the end of the year and say I lost money. 
So it gives you a lot more stability. So <laughs> if the stock market six flags, this is more like Legoland. <laughs> but you don't see a negative, again, negative annual return going back to 1920. So because of the stability that the bonds have provided, this is one of the roles that they carry in the portfolio. One of the roles of bonds is to give stability if you need that. If you don't have the stomach for the ups and downs of the stock market, or if you don't have the time horizon because you might not have a pension or a paycheck in retirement, then perhaps bonds might be a little bit more suitable. And even in low interest environments, they have done a better job protecting the principal than stocks have. So that's one reason. And even this year, by the way, Jeff, if you look at the uh, government bond index this year, I think it was April 30th, by then the market in the US had dropped by more than 9%, the S&P 500. And yet over the same time frame, the, the beginning of the year through April 30th, when the market went down, the government bond index was actually up for the year. In fact, every year when the market went down significantly for the past 20 years, let's say, the bonds had, had positive returns and they and hit steady. So to me, bonds have a role to mitigate a drop in the stock market. And historically, they've done their job. And even this year when the market dropped, they still do their job. So if that's why you use the bonds, they're doing their job. They're doing the job because most bond indices this year, they're, they're positive. So absolutely, they're positive. And they kind of give most of them. I haven't looked at every single one of them. But the ones that I've looked, they all do their job, even when the market is turbulent. Now, the other thing that's important about these bonds are two other things to mention. The first one is that bonds have a bogey and that is inflation. What you want over the long run is to at least capture inflation. And inflation means that from year to year, you're not going to be able to buy the same things. The same dollar won't go as far. So the bonds need to at least give you that preservation of purchasing power. So you can buy the same things even if you invest. And right now what we're seeing is that the inflation is very low and the bond rates are also low. But there were times in the past when you see higher interest rates, but at the time, you also see higher inflation. And on net, when you think about, well, what am I getting beyond inflation? What you see that the rates today are low in part because very low inflation. In the 1980s, we had very high interest rates and people might have been thrilled about the high interest rates. The trouble was that so was inflation. When you look at the net, like what am I getting as an investor beyond inflation? Sometimes it wasn't vastly different than what we're getting today. So I think you have to pay attention to inflation. You can't just look at the bond rates and say, oh, they're very low. Well, part of the reason is inflation. And you don't want higher interest rates <laughs> when inflation is higher because that doesn't mean that you're better off. The other thing about interest rates and being in this low interest rate environment, you mentioned people getting loans and buying houses. Well, what the millennials, what's interesting is that these low interest rates on bonds are good or bad, depending on who you are. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a great benefit to be able to get these mortgages. It's, if you're a borrower, it's probably not good. But if you are a borrower, it's very, very good, actually. If your lender is not, is not that good. So to me, again, it's, it's benefiting certain parts of the market, whether it could be the housing market, it could be even some stocks could be benefiting from this because they can borrow low rates. So just because interest rates are very low, that doesn't mean that it's universally bad or good. It depends on who you are. And quite often, there are benefits to these low interest rates. But if you are looking for stability in your bonds, you certainly are getting it even in this low interest rate environment. 
And the last thing I'll keep drawing on this, <laughs> when we're talking about interest rates, it's always interesting because it seems that the media is reporting the interest rates and as if it, there's one interest rate that dominates everything. And it's particularly coming from the Fed, the Fed and interest rates. Well, it turns out that there are a variety of interest rates out there in the bond market. And it is tied to the perceptions that investors have on the certainty of getting the interest paid to them, as well as the principal at the back end. So the U.S. government right now is considered to be probably the more credit worthy entity. And because of that, the interest rate that uh, investors are willing to accept and the government is paying is low. For a 10-year bond, last time I checked, it was less than 0.7% for 10 years. Now, if you look at other companies, you look, you take a company like Apple. Apple pay, pays more than twice as much for the same 10-year bond, meaning that if they want to borrow, they love to pay 0.6, but the market won't give them that rate. They'll give it to the government, but not to Apple. And then you go from there to, let's say, Starbucks, or you go to Southwest Airlines, or you go to Nordstrom's, and they all want to borrow money, but the rate at which they borrow is different. So as an investor, you can make upwards of five, six, seven, over 8% in some bonds and sometimes even more, but it depends on how much risk are you willing to take with your bonds. So the point that he made right now is an investor, you ought to have an advisor to say, what are the right bonds that I should have given my overall allocation? And to begin with, what is the right allocation bonds that I should have? The only way to know that is to have a financial plan. And then once you know how much you should have in bonds, then what type of bonds do I want to have? Do I want to have more corporate or, or government bonds? And then beyond that, don't just rely only on the interest. There's another way that you can earn returns as an investor, which is by selling these bonds before they mature and have a capital gain. And that's an approach that's called variable maturity. And that certainly adds. So you don't have to just get the low interest. You can sell the bond before it matures and reinvest the money. That's something that investors could do. But they have to work with an advisor that first has a financial plan for them. You need to know how much bonds, what's the role of bonds. And then beyond that, the advisor can help add value to their portfolio. Yeah, the old adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket. There's an egg for every reason in the That's basket. Right. Right? That's right. That's a good one. <laughs> you, know, you mentioned about measuring returns, and that's another point that I find sometimes I occasionally see it with my clients and I see it with family and friends that we're so hyper-focused on what the Dow did today or what the S&P did today. But it doesn't necessarily transcend through to how did that affect their financial plan. If you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. About how, how do we measure performance on investments? It's tempting to look on the news and see a particular number. And let's say that, you know, whatever the case might be, let's say it's the Dow or the S&P, and we'll come back to this. But let's say they're up about 10%. When you look at your portfolio, it's only up about 6 or 7%. It's only normal to say, well, what am I missing? Because I see the market did this, but my portfolio did less. And to me, the first place that I would start, the fundamental first place that I would start is to look back at the financial plan that the advisor did for the family and see what is the split, what is the mix between ownership or stocks and lending or bonds? Because that is the primary driver of investment performance. And, you know, for example, through the end of Q3, the stocks did a lot better than bonds. The bonds were still positive, but not as much as stocks. So certainly if you had a balance of, let's say, 60% stocks or 40%, whatever the balance might have had, if you had bonds in your portfolio, 
for whatever reason that you might have needed those bonds, that egg that he mentioned, <laughs> then the performance that you would have seen on your statement would have been below what the market was because you had a portion of your money invested in bonds. And, and that's a really big surprise to me, how many people are looking at the market and comparing their own portfolio, even though they might have a substantial portion of their money in bonds. And the role of bonds is not necessarily for growth, but as much as stability or income or something else. So to me, I would start there. I would just make sure that you're very comfortable with your knowledge of the split between stocks and bonds. And that is the primary driver of what you see in the portfolio. It's absolutely critical. Know what the mix is. And if you see that you underperform the market at times, it could be that you have a portion in bonds. Now, with that being said, Jeff, at the beginning of Q1, by the end of March, the market had significantly dropped, but the bonds held up a lot better. So what you would have seen in the portfolio is that, hey, you, I did a lot better in the market because I had the bonds. So it doesn't have to be that it always is that, that you underperform the market. You just need to know that. What's the split between stocks and bonds? And by the way, I never mentioned that to you. I was telling you that the stocks had grown to about $9,200 in my dad's lifetime. If you take the same dollar over the same time frame, invest in the safety of these 30-day treasury bills, the growth would be twenty. Very different from 90,200. So that's why you have to know that there is such a big difference in the growth potential of stocks and bonds and then their stability, the fluctuations in value, then that's why you absolutely need to know what the mix is. Beyond that, if you look at the stock market and you see, okay, now I'm just going to compare my stock portion of the portfolio to what I see on the news. Well, it turns out that today's investors, they do have a global perspective. And they do have a significant chunk in the U.S. For most of the time, it tends to be the largest portion. But there is a diversification in international markets, whether it's Germany or Japan or Korea or Brazil, whatever the case might be. There are about 40 different stock markets in which you can deploy your capital as an investor. And it is quite often that advisors have that global perspective. So what you have in your stock portion is not just the U.S. market, but might also be international. So if international outperform, you're going to look better. If international didn't do as well, you're not going to look as good as the U.S. market. And I think that's another thing that that you should know. What's the split between U.S. and international? And if international outperforms, it's fine. We've seen that in the past. It's a diversifier. It's a bit of an insurance. (laughs) You know, it doesn't pay off. I mean, we all pay insurance. (laughs) It's it's Legoland. Yeah, it's like all that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but that's what you want. You want something that moves in a seesaw. So when the U.S. is not doing well, these international stocks hold you up, which is exactly the case from 2000 to 2010. International stocks outperformed the U.S. And it was really good because that period had a negative annualized return in the S&P. So there are different levels of understanding of performance. I think it's not reasonable to just look on the news, see that's how the market did and assume that that's how your portfolio should have done because of having bonds, because of having international stocks. And the last thing that I would say is if we still have time, because I'm kind of diving deep here. Sure, go right ahead. It's how do the market do is one of the most ubiquitous questions in investing. We always ask, how did the market do? I know advisors get it all the time, but not just that. You go to a cocktail party, did you see what the market did today? And over the past few months, I kind of thought about it. Instead of asking, how did the market do? I'd say a better question is, what is the market? 
Because right now, if you look on the news, you're being presented with three versions of the market. And every single day, if you pay attention or through this year, what you see is there's these three metrics of the U.S. market, which are the Dow Jones, probably the most cited, NASDAQ, and the S&P 500. They all have vastly different results. So if you ask how the market do, well, what is the market? Do you, are you talking about the Dow? Are you talking about NASDAQ or the S&P? And they all have quirks in the way that they are computed. And unless you really understand, it's going to be confusing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can watch on the news and you hear a story of one of the Dow 30 stocks had a bad news item or a bad day. And next thing you know, it's just absolutely pummeled uh, the Dow 30. And that's what people sometimes don't understand is the metric you're using may have very little relevance to your true portfolio. And your portfolio, uh, let's be honest, you know, some of these portfolios, and I know with our clients, have 12 to 13,000 securities. Exactly right. it's a little hard to measure it with 30. That's all really good information. You know, you've been an awesome guest so far, very respectful of your time. But before we wrap things up, are there any, you know, you do so many presentations and hear so many investors and so many advisors. Are there any final thoughts you think of anything else that you want to uh, put out there that people to really give some pause and to think about? I would say that the observation that I've had over the past more than a decade since I've talked to individual investors all over the country is that there's a very big behavioral component to investing. And what it means to me is that when people think about decisions they should make with their money, it is not always driven by analysis and data, but quite often about the way they feel or a hunch they have. And I think that, that when it comes to investing, there's also an element of entertainment and excitement and fun that's part of this behavioral stuff. And I'm here to tell you that there's nothing wrong with, with having that. If all of us want to take some risk and all of us want to do it, something that's a little more interesting and stimulate the brain muscle. But what I would caution folks is if you think of that, that is more something that you do because it's interesting, it's fun, it's exciting, it's entertaining, and do it with a part of your portfolio that keeps you engaged in the market. And it's absolutely perfectly fine to do it. And particularly since you get educated on boards and how things work, and I think that's fine. What I would say is that setting aside the behavioral side, the bulk of somebody's assets should be managed professionally by somebody who creates a financial plan that looks holistically at the goals and the objectives and what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? When do you need the money? How much money do you need? And not just make it about one person. And that's a really big deal because quite often it's about the person handling money and then everybody in the family is supposed to just follow along. And what we've seen is that there should be joint financial objectives in the family. There should be kids being involved in literacy. And the only way to do that is to have a financial advisor that has a comprehensive perspective to managing assets. And to me, that is the big thing that I would suggest is that even as people have that itch to dabble in the market, nothing wrong with that, but do it in a way that it stimulates and engages you. And yet the family assets should be professionally managed and it should be involving the spouse. It should be involving the kids to some degree, even at a younger age, I think it's important. And that's that I really would love to tell people is that it's fun to be in the market. It's fun to explore, fun to read. But, you know, think about it. It's a very competitive place. And I think you're better served looking at this as an engagement and, and, and stimulating activity rather than I have the competitive edge to consistently outsmart everybody else. Rather, let a professional handle the money. And I think down the road, investors will be better served. 
all the good sage advice from one of the smartest guys in the room. And I can tell you this room only has two people in it saying, there's no doubt I, I'm the dumbest guy in the room and he's the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> and, and with that, Dr. Lepescu, we really appreciate you having here today. There's no doubt you've been the most esteemed guest early uh, in its infancy podcast here. And I'm just pleased as punch that you took some time out of your day today and we're able to be our guest and i hope it's someday to have you back again maybe to refresh us and give us a you know an update of where things are so with that i really appreciate having you here it's just been fantastic so i hope you've enjoyed something out of today and one person can gain some great knowledge from your vast experience it was great fun talking to you and thank you so much for having us and i really appreciate it. look forward to uh coming back <laughs> And with that, that's going to wrap up our Plan to Retire podcast today. And, you know, if you have comments or questions on the podcast, our email is pretty easy. It's podcast at plantoretire.com. And that's plan and the number two retire.com. So if you have some questions for us or some future topics you think might be of interest, feel free to email us at podcast at plantoretire.com. And with that, we hope you have a wonderful day. And as I always say, if you're not doing your financial plan, someone else is doing the planning for you. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning into the Plan to Retire podcast. Head on over to plantoretire.com. That's the number two. So plan the number two retire.com to learn more, schedule a no obligation introductory phone call, or to subscribe to this free podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. We'll see you next time on the Plan to Retire podcast.